It's the Pittsburgh Oddcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Pittsburgh Oddcast. My name is Andrew Lindbergh. I'm the producer of the program. And with me, as always, is Mr. Odd, John Chalkowski. Hello. So, Andrew, when I say the name Johnny Appleseed, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? The first thing that comes to my mind is a pot on top of his head. <laughs> That's very good. The That's metal pot that he would wear. Formerly, what used to come to my head as well. Um, I know that and he apples. Apples. I yeah, I knew that he didn't wear any shoes. You know, apparently hiked through the wilderness barefoot and planted these apple seeds along the way, and thus his name, Appleseed. <laughs> what I did not know until fairly recently, which is kind of a shame. And uh, I say that's kind of a shame because if I knew this information when I was young uh, or a kid, that might have changed, you know, how I felt about Johnny Appleseed, even though I don't know what kind of feelings I have about Johnny Appleseed. But the uh, he almost seemed kind of like a a tall tale, like a Paul yeah, Bunyan or a John Henry. That's exactly it. And the reason why I felt that way, too, is because of a really famous Disney cartoon you know, that was uh a part of their Merry Melodies collection, which I was obsessed with Disney cartoons when I was a kid. Like, I not, you know, the new stuff, but, like, the old-timey classics. Now, weren't they the Silly Symphonies people? Silly Symphonies and Merry Melodies. Oh, yeah, silly, silly Symphonies, correct. Because Merry Melodies oh. was Bugs Bunny. Melody, no, okay, here we go. Melody Time. That's what the show was called. So they had Silly Symphonies and a show called Melody Time. Melody Time had a great, uh, I played piano when I was a kid, and, and I was like, obsessed with this one short cartoon they did called the flight of the bumblebee which was like the song flight of the bumblebee but it was like this thing called the bumble boogie right <laughs> which was great uh among those cartoons was one about paul bunyan um you know all these other legends of yore however including johnny appleseed although i later went back and rewatched the those episodes of melody time and saw that Unbeknownst to me, in the first you know three minutes of the program, it says Johnny Appleseed got his start right here in Pittsburgh town back in 1806. I was like Pittsburgh, Pit, what what <laughs> you know? Uh, completely threw me for a curveball, and I was like, well, Johnny Appleseed live in Pittsburgh? Like you started here in Pittsburgh? Like what what's going on here? And I decided to start you know looking into that and starting to see what kind of information's out there about Johnny Appleseed better known as John Chapman, um, and what his involvement was in early Fort Pitt pioneer days. And sure enough, he has a story that takes place here in Pittsburgh, of all places. And this was talked about through history a little bit, you know, that people would know his name because of his legend. Uh, he was part of the Swedenborg Church, is what he was a minister of. And along with planting these apple seeds along the country, he would go and tell tales about the church, you know, in the Bible. And a missionary, uh, you know, a better word for it. But one that would give you an apple tree. So That's right. Here's an, an apple tree. An apple, apple day keeps the devil away. And I'd, right? Here's <laughs> so, an apple tree. Now I'd like to tell you about Jesus. Yeah. That's literally how Johnny Appleseed got to start. So, um, however, there's a great story I found that was published in the Western Pennsylvania Magazine. So there's a historical magazine that uh, has been published every year uh, for over 100 years now. Well, close to 100 years. must be approaching its 100th anniversary, if not already. And it's still published to this day. And it's the journal that the uh, the magazine that the Highest History Center puts out and uh, published by Brian Bucko, um, an amazing historian himself. Uh, yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah. And 
through his that thing, all the records of those previous issues do exist. And there'll be small little articles you find in there talking about basically everything. Uh, you know, like uh, a nice story about Abraham Lincoln when he was there in Pittsburgh. Like, a, you know, four-page little story. Or whatever the case may be. Uh, Johnny Appleseed is featured in one of these stories. And this is from 1930. So it's from uh, a story that was published in that magazine in 1930 by a guy named E. John Long. Tells the story about... The Adventures of Johnny Appleseed in Pittsburgh. And we're, I'm going to read a little bit from the story, and we'll talk about it. And it's good that we, uh, you know, I, I'm going to read directly from this because it's a uh, has some actual quotes from the man himself. And it begins that not far from the city of McKeesport, in the district known as Five Fields, a gnarled apple tree stump stands at the forks of two unimportant country roads. One of the roads winds northeast from the forks, Soon dons a modern brick coat in a prosaic name of Hartman Street. Downhill, it sweeps the track of Braddock and Washington, passing the site of the last encampment of the ill-fated expedition of 1755. The other forks turn in the opposite direction, through a forest of white breaches, uh, beaches, pauses on a hillside and haw bushes, and finally drops down into Snake Hollow. In 1921, which was the bustling center of McKeesport's great natural gas boom, but today, a quiet spot of rotting derrick timbers and rusting pipelines. So it's from 1930. You know, so he's giving a good, good description of what that looked like, which I imagine was pretty accurate. <laughs> uh, almost an on the watershed between the two roads, a strategic spot for a memorial. An old apple tree stump basks in the light of the afternoon sun and the glory of local tradition. For here, romantic McKeesporters declare is a relic of John Chapman better known throughout the Ohio Valley as Johnny Appleseed. He's saying that there was, at least at this time the writing, in McKeesport, an actual tree planted by none other than Johnny Appleseed himself. You're saying Johnny Appleseed from McKeesport. <laughs> Nuts. So, the hewed and hacked remnants of this twisted stump does give the appearance of a great age. Old-timers recall the apple tree that stood there once during their lifetime. Some even recall the fruit it once bore. Whether it sprang from the deerskin skin, uh, seed bag of Johnny Appleseed or whether it was but a chance sprouting of a casually tossed out core, it serves to keep afresh the memory of the obscure but lovable character whose practical philanthropy has greatly enriched the legendary lore of the Pittsburgh region. We of Western Pennsylvania have all heard of Johnny Appleseed. Here and there, we have bumped into bits and pieces of folklore and rare anecdotes of his crude but honest hospitality, of his gifts of apple seeds to westward trekking pioneers, and of the orchards he cleared and once planted, and of his voluntary missions to the good of the Indians. But never have we held an opportunity to meet the legendary character, to understand the strange yearnings which drew him from his Connecticut home across the River Rude Mountain Trails to what was then 1793, the very rim of civilization's horizon. Henry Chapman, a descendant of John Chapman, recalls in his book, with rare sympathy and a good deal of understanding, he gives us a man in a vivid and colorful background of life and customs of the post-revolutionary war days in the country west of the Alleghenies. While the book is somewhat fictional and sometimes in its approach, its incidents and settings possess a remarkable degree of authenticity. Not attempting to be a source of reference, however, is nonetheless a literary tidbit for any 
listener and historian uh, that would ever come forward. Mr. Chapman has chosen wisely his medium. Left an orphan in his late teens, Johnny, decided that the age of commerce, which followed hard in the heels of the revolution in Connecticut, was not just for him. He didn't want to be part of this whole industrial revolution that was going on. Greed for land and lust for possessions filled men's hearts. Even taxes were being raised by public lotteries. Time to be off, the youthful Yankee told himself. I'd best be see what an axemen are doing in the Alleghenies, he is quoted as saying. He himself at the time probably could not have explained in words just why he had to take up that trail, but certainly he had no inkling in the part that he was going to play in the great drama being staged along the Ohio frontier. In reply to the question of a friend, he said, Ever since I was a little boy, something in my blood just made me want to go west. West, of course, he's talking about Pittsburgh. <laughs> and, uh, and keep going on until I found the very edge of things. This isn't the edge. I want to help plant the wilderness. It isn't much, but it is what I was born to do. Nothing else matters. You have to aim at something and stick to it. If it makes you happy, I will be that planter. That's a quote from the man himself talking about what he did. He was a real man. I mean, it's the thing. Yes, he's a cartoon. <laughs> yes, he's mentioned in most kids' school books. and talk. We have Johnny Appleseed Day at schools now. Um, but he was a real man. He wasn't just some mythical legend like a Paul Bunyan. Um, that's important not to forget because of what he really strove to do. And I think it's also important to remember that in 1793, he is coming to a place in Pittsburgh that is basically what we view California or Arizona now mm -hmm. as the West. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Think of like, the West, the frontier. Not nobody that there's not, knew. <laughs> yeah. Maybe more today like my Wyoming or Montana, like the right. last frontier, Alaska. Right, right. I mean, th these were areas, you know, the Allegheny Mountains um, in the middle of Pennsylvania were the barrier for all Western culture to ever come forward since i mean you talk in any kind of early american history i mean people were landing here in america you know the 1620s 1630s people were settling here and so for 100 years they were already living here 150 years really before they even anybody had the guts or the you know wherewithal to actually cross those mountains or go down a river and find out what was here nobody knew and when we say people had the guts we mean white people had the guts <laughs> Well, that we know about. I mean, that's the thing about recorded history is that it comes from a white man's, you know, hand. I mean, that's recorded history. You're not going to read about female history, you know, Native American history or, or African American history or any kind of history along those means unless you're reading it from the source themselves, which is very, very, very difficult to find. Um. In rare occasions, women might have a chance to tell some history, and that doesn't even happen until the 1900s, uh, unless there's some kind of tragic incident or murder or court case where the woman would be featured. Then and only then would you start reading their side of the tale. Well, a good for anybody that's interested in that kind of history, I would recommend a People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, where he is he found as much as he could to tell the story from the side of the non-victors or the people right. that were in charge. Yeah. I mean, cause that's who the people are, right? It's not, um, yeah, you, know, you have to remember when you're talking about history of who wrote it. Number one, 
and who's sharing it and who's talking about continuing that tradition today. But then also, uh, what are their stories? You know, when I, uh, as part of the North Hills organization for like Ross Township Historical Society, we have this thing called Indian Spring. Okay, now it's a legend that's attached to this bowl of water which sits inside Evergreen Park, a Native American legend that was passed down through generations and appears in the early newspapers in the 1920s as this uh, legend of a man, a Native American man, coming here and telling the story about these two star-crossed lovers who uh, were being chased through the wilderness and this man comes across this bowl of magical waters that suddenly appears, drinks from it, he's saved from his injuries that he suffered along the way and and marries this girl and basically happy ever after. <laughs> that's uh, the gist of the tale. That's all we know about this actual bowl that's in Evergreen Park. There's no origin other than that story. There's no Nobody has ever claimed that they built it. Uh, people were traveling from all different states coming here to get water for like the Fountain of Youth at one time or another. It, right in, around Babcock Boulevard, you know, at Evergreen Road. Uh, we're traveling from New York, New Jersey to Ohio, you know, just to get little bottles of water. Um but it goes to show you that some of these tales and legends and things is all we have uh, for some people like that, especially when you start going back in time, farther deeper in time, like the 1790s, there, the, while there is a little bit written down uh, from letters and notes and things like that and diaries, that's the only information you're going to find. You, there's no like official history book. Um, and uh, it's in, during that time period when I, we were having a uh, like a festivity to rededicate the Indian Spring in the name of Native Americans, we, we invited the Three Rivers Tribal Arts Council to come and participate and hear their legends because they have a whole separate history of Pittsburgh, which is not shared with the general public. And it's a way of uh, remembering them and the people who came before them and their stories and legends, which have been wrongly told in our Pittsburgh history books. Well, I don't want to get on a soapbox here, but I might for just a second, is a lot of people have issues with revisionist history. Mm-hmm. But I believe we should just learn what really happened. <laughs> right. If we grew up thinking that George Washington never told a lie, mm. but that's not true, I'm sorry, but too bad. We need to know what really happened. Yeah, yeah. Probably, and I believe that yeah. when it comes to Pittsburgh, we need to hear these stories about the Native Americans yeah. and uh, you know the first settlers and you know like Johnny Appleseed. Right, yeah. I mean, these, these types of stories... Otherwise, would go forgotten, and, and there's so many stories to tell. We will do event, uh, another episode eventually of Native American stories and the tales that have come from them, from their direct words. And maybe we should get a guest in for that. Yeah, I mean that would be incredible to get somebody get to have their opinion because it's a, uh, um, you know, the history is twofold, and you have um, there's there's multiple layers to the story. It's not just one guy coming up with all this information you know on my site i might seem like one guy which i am but it comes from thousands of people who have contributed this history whether you're doesn't matter what color or where you're from or what kind of you know ethnic background you had um the stories need to be told well i think we should get back to this because this story right here is written beautifully and even though it was written all the way back in 1930 right it's still almost 200 years after the yeah. fact of this <laughs> yeah, original exactly. origin story. So. Right. I mean, luckily, John Chapman himself kept a, a diary and a journal of what was going on. And he wrote a little bit about his experience, but it was really done through his eventual accomplishments, which we're going to talk about, that it really gets into it. So 
Back to the story, right? He's an orphan, okay? He's in his late teens. That's when he decides to go west, okay? He himself at the time probably couldn't even explain in words, you know, why the reason he wanted to go other than the fact that he just wanted to uh, do what made him happy. And uh, Johnny Appleseed sharing the driver's seat of his Conestoga wagon packed up, okay, and rode all the way here to Pittsburgh in the northern branch of the Race Down Path part of which is now the Lincoln Highway, through Carlisle, through Fort Ligonier, on to Greensburg, and finally Pittsburgh. The year Johnny came west to the point of land between the two rivers, which was Pittsburgh, showed the ruin of the two disputed forts, Duquesne and Pitt, says the author. It says the walls of the expensive Fort Pitt were then hauled off to make houses and boat yards by the newcomers, many of whom have never heard of a war whoop of a Native American. Johnny was a bit bewildered when the freight wagons finally dropped him at the tavern of Ben Richards on Ferry Street. He had reached his objective, and with no further plans at the moment, he had suddenly at a loss to what he should do next. He found lodging at the house of Madame Grenadier, a hearty, worldly, wise woman, well past middle age, he says. And he was safe enough under her roof when the mob of John Holcroft, called Tom the Tinker, took the town during the Whiskey Rebellion. When things settled down, Johnny Appleseed found his first job here in Pittsburgh. He became a shipwright and helped construct many early rafts and river scowls that carried settlers to the strange journeys westward. He decided that the 10 years of Pittsburgh life was worth 100 in Connecticut. Johnny was to live in Pittsburgh for 12 years, from 1794 to 1806. He became a Westerner, full-fledged, he felt time rolling by at a pace with great things on the horizon. Here it is that John Chapman ceased to exist, and a new man with a strange faraway ideas in his head came to life, a man people called Johnny Appleseed. He has been forming a long time in the shell of a young John Chapman. For 12 years in Pittsburgh, swallowed him up, but Johnny also swallowed Pittsburgh and its meaning of life it could teach him. When he wanted to think, he worked with his hands, and sometimes at tasks that he loved. And by and by, the idea he wanted un came uncalled for for all the thin air, he knew exactly what he wanted to do. And so, although he had knew, knew in his heart that someday he would slide out upon the current of the Ohio and go on and down to the greater wilderness, he built himself a log home on a grassy rise once called Grant's Hill. Grant's Hill, as we know today, was the location of the battle of James Grant, or the defeat of James Grant, but also the location where the courthouse is today, and by right, Ross, Ross Street and Grant Street, right, right in the smack of downtown, right Pittsburgh. smack of downtown, where Johnny Appleseed called his home. Here was a clear spring. He could never accustom himself to drinking the muddy river waters, which most people drank here in Pittsburgh. <laughs> yeah, disgusting. When the apple orchards came into bloom, Johnny would walk along the Allegheny River through the overgrown trees of the King's Orchard and get to work helping to tend the better-kept trees belonging to General O'Hara. Gradually came the idea of an orchard for himself, with plenty of good seed for the people who could take it into their new places. Always within him, Johnny harbored the feeling that his mission in life was to serve his fellow man in quiet ways, without ostentation. So now the, um, the king's orchard they're talking about was an actual thing. It was basically the whole west side of the Allegheny River, um, well, the banks right there beyond the Golden Triangle of downtown Pittsburgh was orchards. It's on the early Pittsburgh maps, this King's Orchard. 
even when Fort Pitt was still here. And uh, that is where Johnny Appleseed got his start. I mean, right on 6th Street, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, and 11th, that area of downtown Pittsburgh was the King's Orchard. It was not long before the home of the eccentric but kindly man whom the natives always have called Johnny Appleseed became known to the weary and the shelterless. His home was not a bar. It was a way station for the stranger in want. A cow, a garden, and his trees and beehives satisfied all of his wants, and there was always plenty to spare for those who would stop at his door. All he would take in exchange were articles of cast-off clothing, and his dress began to look a little strange within time, but this didn't bother him, nor did his bother his cheerful good nature. Years go by. Johnny Appleseed becomes an institution of his pioneer parade. Always hospitality reigned at his cabin. Always there were a handful of apple seeds to speed the partying guests. But Pittsburgh was growing, and life was getting a little bit too easy for Johnny. Eastern civilization was creeping over the mountains, catching up with Johnny Appleseed. He wanted to rejoin his own people and renew his sense of hardship. One day in June of 1806, Johnny made a sort of craft by lashing two dugouts side by side. The best of his supply of apple seed he put in deerskin bags, placed them on the bottom of his boat. He gave his house, his orchard, his garden patch to a widow with three children and a small helper and pushed off into the sparkling waters of the Ohio. In Marietta, he found his fame that had preceded him. Commander Whipple of Fort Hammer turned out the entire garrison to plow, turned up the entire garrison to plow up an orchard land just for Johnny to plant. Pushing up the musk, uh, the river, he established another plantation, this time at Black Forks, then along Sandusky. Uh, beyond the pioneer outposts, he made friends with the Native Americans, nursed their sick children, and gave them apple trees. Unarmed, he boldly stalked the country, and his name became to be a marvel of the frontier folk who lived balanced between life and death. So remember at that time, you know, you walk outside the wrong, you make the wrong way, you know, you're going to be killed. Uh, during the war of 1812, when the borderlands seethed with conflict between whites and redmen, Johnny Appleseed moved unmolested. He tried to make peace in vain, but his scalp alone of all the whites was not desired by any hostile native American. After the war, he began to move down the Ohio in the vanguard of the pioneers, planting apple seeds long as he went. Johnny Appleseed, hardy frontiersman that he was, could not go on forever. At the home of his friend William Watt of Fort Wayne, he finally took sick and died, in all places, for one who has survived so many dangers, in a bed. While Mr. Chapman's book might please the student of history better than he had given us a work entirely of non-fiction, he had supported his statements with references to the actual sources, that had nonetheless cleared a good deal of that mist that surrounded the lovable St. Francis of the West. A book is a distinct contribute, contribution to the folklore and history of Pittsburgh. Well, so that's uh, a, a great little article from a 1930 magazine uh, that really gives Pittsburghers their first glimpse into who John Chapman really was in this legend of Johnny Appleseed. He was a legend back then, just like he's a legend today. And uh, that cartoon wouldn't be produced, I think, until the 1950s even. So, I mean, a, a whole other generation of children would come to know who Johnny Appleseed was and another generation and another generation. Yeah, I mean, this is like a Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone type yeah, yeah. character. Who also 
speaking of which, had connections to Pittsburgh. Daniel Boone was with George Washington and General Braddock during that Braddock's defeat. Yeah, so I uh, didn't know that either. I think it's fascinating that, you know, John Chapman decided he wanted to be in the frontier. Mm -hmm. And so Pittsburgh was the place that he picked. Yeah. I mean, a frontier. And then he's here for, what, 12 years? 12 years, yeah. And he realizes at the end of those 12 years that Pittsburgh is kind of passing him by Mm -hmm. where it's not the frontier so much anymore. Mm -hmm. So he needs to go further. Right. To keep up with his passion. Yeah. And and a passion so strong that I can last for 200 years. 200 years later, we're still talking about this guy, Johnny Appleseed. And it's amazing because we just did a story on KDK Radio's website about this urban orchard being planted in the former St. Clair Village site in St. Clair. Um, and that's big news. <laughs> right. That this It's this urban orchard, and they're planting apples and all kinds of other things, and it'll help, you know, sustain food for people, you know, around there. And this is something that <laughs> yeah. Johnny Appleseed was doing Goes back to over 200 years right? ago. Yeah, I mean, that's the... Uh the bigger message, you know, to get out of what Johnny Appleseed was even doing was exactly the same thing that people are doing today, was that you could, you know, wilderness and the frontier times especially, you could go days without getting a decent meal. You know, bread was basically non-existent if you knew how to make it, right? Uh, or you're eating rabbits and squirrels, you know, if you could find them. Uh, that's if your neighbors didn't get them first. So having an apple orchard or any kind of orchard or or farm, you know, along those lines, a sustainable one, the one that would keep on giving you food, was a big challenge. And uh, Johnny Appleseed learned how to his craft and his trade right here in Pittsburgh, which most people just don't, just never knew. And um, he knew that people could go hungry. So just by giving the simple gesture of one apple, a single apple, he could, um, you know, better mankind. Well, I think it's fu- uh, not funny, but... I think it's interesting because, you know, when you hear about Johnny Appleseed, you think, okay, this is a guy that just planted a bunch of apple trees. He just he walked all over the country and just threw seeds everywhere, right. and then there were apple trees everywhere. But he was feeding people and mm-hmm. bettering people's lives. Yeah, yeah. Not only was he planting all that stuff and feeding people, and but he was also planting the seed in his people's you know minds about how to treat your fellow neighbors and and the mission of which he kind of was involved in. Because I remember this whole time he was preaching, too. You know, this doesn't talk about that that much, but he did have some kind of, you know, he felt the power to go and talk and feed the homeless. And he himself purposely dressed, you know, in torn, used secondhand-down clothes, like that idea of a pot on his head, you know, and not wearing shoes. It's supposed to represent that he was just like an everyman, you know, and that nothing, no worldly possessions mattered to him. And uh, almost like a saintly f- a figure. I mean, like he was almost like a saint, America's saint. So he was a preacher and he helped his neighbors. Mm-hmm. So he's basically the original Mr. Rogers. <laughs> That's right. It's a beautiful day in Johnny Appleseed's neighborhood. <laughs> so future episodes feel free if you know a tale of somebody some strange character like this or always wanted to know the history behind some kind of rumor whether it's joe magnarak right or uh these other tall tales 
see if there's some, some, some truth behind them, get in touch with me, right? Uh, oddpittsburgh at gmail.com. Email the pages of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Mr. Odd at oddpittsburgh.com. Multiple ways to get a hold of us. Uh, leave us a message. Let us know what you think. Uh, let us know if there's some other kind of tale and some other person you want to hear about. And until next time, that's it, Port Pitt.